Hi, welcome to another episode of Dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. Today I'm talking to Liz Brunig, who's an opinion writer on the New York Times. And I really wanted to talk to her because of her recent reporting and writing on the return of the federal death penalty. Just towards the end of Donald Trump's term in office, there were 13 executions. And they, they were the first federal executions for uh, 17 years. And we talk about why that happened, uh, what Bill Barr and Donald Trump did to bring the federal death penalty back, and also what that means going forward, both for states and the, the federal government. And along the way, we talk about some of the moral and theological arguments around the death penalty, how the politics and policy uh, have really shifted over the last um, few decades. And Liz also shares her own experience of witnessing uh, the execution in Indiana at the end of 2020. And she also shares how a murder actually in her own close family has informed some of her own thinking um, and work in this area. I, I learned a, a great deal from her writing and reporting. I'll be honest, I didn't know quite the extent of the return of the federal death penalty until I read her work. And I really wanted to dig into that more deeply with her. And so I also learned a, a huge amount from the conversation on this really important issue. And, and I hope you do too. Liz Brunig, welcome to Dialogues. Thanks so much for having me on. It's really, uh, really exciting to meet you. I guess this is what counts as uh, as meeting now. One of my one of my junior team members was very excited that I was going to be talking to you. A big fan of yours. Said you're a great writer and, and also great on Twitter. And I I must admit I do follow you on on Twitter, and I think you have a great voice there as well. One of the things that strikes me about it is your willingness to be very open about sort of domestic concerns and, and achievements um, oh yeah yeah why not I guess yeah well I mean I think um I don't know domestic labor domestic production whatever you want to call it housework which is probably how most of us think of it uh it's such a it's such a fraught domain right because this becomes the sort of battleground of uh the the feminism of the 1960s and 70s in the post-war America, you have this period of sort of uh, peace and and relative uh, prosperity, um, and you know the suburbs explode, and suddenly you have um, women in in middle and upper class households anyway, uh, spending a lot of their time indoors in your you know average ranch home. Uh, mm -hmm. doing domestic labor. And uh, domestic labor has also changed quite a bit in this period because appliances, household appliances have been, uh, you know, have had widespread uptake. So it's actually much less laborious than it once was to clean a carpet, wash dishes. Um, you even get mixers, hand mixers, hand beaters and stand mixers, things that make baking bread or making mm -hmm. cakes much less laborious than they once were. These used to be physically demanding and, and washing clothes, especially you, you think about hauling around as a, as a laundress, if you were doing your, uh, if you were working as a laundress or doing your own laundry, you think about hauling around, you know, uh, 10, 20 soaking wet articles of clothing, you're talking about a lot of weightlifting. And so these things were really demanding. And then you enter a period where they, they become uh, quite a bit less so. Um, and, and I think that accounts for why this this labor that, that that's really important it has to be done it has someone's, to get so, done so, someone's doing it but you sh yeah. you sh you show it and it feels i'm glad you said that because it feels somewhat intentional to me you know and it's obviously oh, yeah. fun you had these great ho home homemade oatmeal cream pies on the other day but it also really struck me the other day because you had this beautiful piece of embroidery that you'd done for your mm -hmm. daughter i think and Jane. um i was actually just watching it i just watched enola holmes and there's this i don't know if you've watched the the movie uh, enola holmes mm -hmm. You have young kids, so I mean, yeah. But um, it's been a while. But there's, a, there's this, yeah. There's well, if my experience is anything to go by, there's like a five-year period where you miss all the movies, and then twenty years later, you can go back and watch them again. But yeah. there's <laughs> there's this great scene where she uh, she lists all the things she doesn't do, and one of them is I don't embroider. And this guy says in response to her, says, "You don't embroider." Uh, and I was listening, and I just seen your beautiful embroidery and so what it felt to me is if the Holmes movie was taking like the a traditional feminist stance which is of course I don't embroider and there's you showing your embroidery um and kind of taking kind of delight in it that does feel like an assertion of someone's doing this I like doing I'm not going to share but I also wonder if you get obviously you get hate on Twitter 
for all kinds of things. But do you get any heat for that kind of thing, for being so intentionally open about this domestic, not just domestic labor, but domestic joy to some extent from certain kinds of feminists? Oh, yeah, um, for sure. Um, there's a lot of, you know, why did the New York Times hire a mommy blogger? And um, why are, you know, uh, why don't you just quit and be a, a stay-at-home mom, et cetera, et cetera, things like that. Um, there's a lot of allegations of being a trad wife, a traditional mm-hmm. wife. I know a bit about the trad wife movement. Yeah, yeah and yeah. and um, my perspective is just, look, you went through this period in the, in the 60s and 70s where there was an intentional uh, underscoring of how trifling and ridiculous and meaningless and unfulfilling this work is. And yet... Someone still has to do this work, and I uh, take a bit of pride in doing it in a skilled way, and and I work it uh, just like any other skill. Um, The cooking, the baking, uh, meal planning, prep, preservation, uh, sewing, embroidery, those are skills. It's skilled work. I develop it. I'm constantly working on it. I read about it. Uh, It's no joke, and I think that there's nothing more respectful of the of the people who do that kind of labor day in day out whether they be uh cleaning ladies people who come and perform that labor uh in in lieu of a homeowner or a residence owner um people who who cook for families etc then to recognize this is skilled work and it's important and it can be can be just as a fulfilling and uh, can register the same feelings of achievement as any other kind of work. And there's nothing to be ashamed of. of to in, hide in it. it. Yeah, it's almost right. like the work, the work that was not allowed to speak its name for a while, that you're sort of right. writing down the cause somehow. Yes, by, and also it's fine it. to be traditionally feminine. There's nothing wrong with mm. those things. There's nothing wrong with being a woman. Iggy Pop has a great quote where he says, I don't mind dressing up like a woman because I don't think there's anything wrong with being a woman. Yeah, same. Well, Again, I we'll agree. Have, perhaps I'll have you back. I'm trying to write a book about boys and men right now and mm. how we think about masculinity and femininity and whether how can we can escape from these boxes. But, uh, oh, but that's, that's probably kind of, oh, yes. Well, we should have a, another conversation about that. But, but if anybody needed evidence that despite your intentional, um, I think, valuing of that kind of labor, that you're not a mommy blogger, they would only have to read the work you've been doing recently over the last few months really been doing some terrific reporting on the re-emergence of the federal death penalty. And it's just extraordinary. And I, and I, I will admit that until I really started looking into it and following your work, and I, just, I just didn't know that we'd seen this sort of death rush, uh, mm-hmm. if you like, under kind of Trump and the, of, of the 17 people that the federal government has executed in the last 60 years. Am I getting that right? 13 was in the last year or so right right? just over the last Last seven or eight months yeah yeah so it's just um kind of i'll get into kind of the politics of that just in a moment but it was just you know and i think your reporting has really drawn attention to a lot of us um to to that you know that that kind of upsurge recently and i I want to get into that from i'm going to look at talk about the morality and theology of that the politics and public opinion but i also just want to start with your own sort of personal experience you wrote this you know terrific piece about um your own experience so Alfred Bourgeois, who you write about, he was pronounced dead at 8.21 p.m. on Friday, December the 11th, having taken more than 20 minutes to die. Mm-hmm. And you were there in Indiana as he died, um, as he was one of the people that you've been writing about. And you witnessed what you described as brutality cloaked in sterile procedure. I have two questions for you about this, if you're willing to answer them. One is, why did you go to ex- mm-hmm. to experience it firsthand? And secondly, describe the experience of those 20 minutes for you. Yeah, so I, I went because, um, you know, I'm against the death penalty for a lot of reasons. Um, and, and at the same time, I certainly understand why people feel compelled by it. And I think one of the reasons that it's so compelling is that the murders, the crimes always wind up rendered um, very graphically in the press, which I, I don't mean to insult the press. I think that's, you know, part of the job of the press, tell the truth, right? And so the crimes themselves become very concrete. The victims become very concrete. You know, um, everyone uh, remembers the, you know, 
images of um, Madeline McCann, mm. right? You can see her face in your mind, right? The victims of crime become people, they become concrete, we relate to them and we sympathize with them as human beings. Executions are hardly ever rendered in that kind of detail. And so the people who are uh, sentenced to die are much more difficult to conceive of as human beings who you could relate with, who you have things in common with, who are people just like you, um, which I think makes it easier to feel like the death penalty kind of ethically cashes out. It's like this non-human thing committed a horrible crime against a human being who's relatable and lovable. Um, and so sure, eliminate that sort of non-human entity. Um, but I wanted to render it in, in full concrete detail, which to me meant not sparing the details of the crime, which I, I was at pains not to do that. I mean, I read a, mm. a two-year-old's autopsy report um, with, a, with an 18-month-old in my lap. It's worth, I think, just per perhaps outlining his crimes, actually, because as you say, you don't sure. you you don't flinch um, from what he did, and and there was one point I think where it became even more home to you, wasn't there? A nickname for the daughter? Yes, that's um, yours. His uh, so he had uh, Alfred Bourgeois was a truck driver from Louisiana. He's a Creole. He had a a daughter named Jacaren who he found out about through a paternity hearing. In Texas, he went to the paternity hearing. He, this was his daughter. The mother sent the little girl back with him to Louisiana. At this point, uh, Alfred Bourgeois was already caring for multiple children of his. Um, he was living with his then uh, wife, and he would bring his family with him in his truck uh, when he did long-haul deliveries. Um, so uh, a very high-pressure, high-stress situation. Um, nevertheless, talking to family members of his, he did introduce this little girl to his family, and it seemed to, to me was doing what he could uh, to integrate her, but ultimately, clearly not at all up to the challenge of taking care of a two-year-old who's newly dislocated from her mother and grandmother and the, the only life she'd ever known. And the stress, um, you know, he, he wasn't up to it. And he, he started to abuse her. Um, he would beat her, he would hit her, he would scream at her. He certainly couldn't handle the uh, potty training aspect of dealing with a two-year-old. So oftentimes in the truck, he would keep her simply strapped to a potty chair, um, tied down to it. And, um, you know, come a day, they're in Corpus Christi, Texas, on a military base. Um, and he was he was doing a delivery. Uh, and during the backup, the little girl, Jacaran, knocked over her potty chair Alfred grabbed her and bashed her head against the inside of the cab of a truck. Um, so, you know, think of it like, you know, we've all heard of right, shaking baby, shaken baby syndrome. This is that kind of a grabbing and shaking with this added element of the inside cab of a truck. He was actually um, bashing her. I mean, it was a bit, sounds like bashing her head against Right. Her. And right. that's off the back of... Um, sustained abuse by the sound that you talk about him yeah, forcing absolutely. her to drink his own urine and, and right right and right. so it's just i mean it's just and we'll it's get into some terrible. of the right some of the it, stuff it, horrible yeah, it, i mean so it, so we'll get into some of the deep i mean so i think some of the things he may not have been guilty of we might get into a little bit later but but you paint a very vivid picture of just horrific crime against total the cruelty, defense like yeah. just ab, just and as you say you had and and actually i think wasn't the same name that you've used for your daughter, Jaja, right. is that so right? Her name was Jacaran. My daughter's name is Jane. When Jane was little, we called her Jaja. Um, and they too called Jacaran Jaja. And Jacaran, when she died, was two years old. And my youngest daughter is about to turn two. So I would be at home working on writing this piece with Claire sitting in my lap and typing around her, which I do very often. And, and I'd be looking at Jacaran's autopsy report. And, um, you know, it's very, very hard to sympathize with this individual. And I guess that's in the end, maybe not what, not what you're asking us no, to right. do. But you, so, you, so you decide to go. You feel like mm -hmm. it's important as a reporter and maybe as a person to experience it yourself and those 20 minutes whilst you were sitting there watching him die can you describe that yeah that there was also i guess it's worth adding a, a political reason which is the federal government was doing this during the pandemic um so there were you know 
quite natural deterrence for reporters. Um, the federal prisons um, were hotbeds of uh, COVID, just like a lot of state prisons. Um, uh, Terre Haute had, had COVID. There was COVID on death row. Some of these people who were put to death either had it or had just had it when they were executed. And people were, uh, COVID was passing uh during these executions, these specific federal executions. So there was incentive not to do it. Um, and that bothered me. I don't like the idea of the state intentionally trying to exclude the press from something that's public to the press for a very good reason. So uh, we get there. And there's a long waiting period. You sit in a building and you wait while the lawyers try their final appeals for, you know, their final chance at stays. And then uh, nobody can move until the Supreme Court says, no, we're not we're not issuing any more stays. And, and Terre Haute um, won't they will execute someone who still has pending litigation in lower courts, but not the Supreme Court. They'll wait for the Supreme Court. And so, you know, this court is majority conservative. They declined to issue a stay. Uh, and around seven, we got moving. They take you to a unit, they process you, they pat you down, you go through metal detectors, you take off your coat, your sweater, they look inside your mask, um, everything. Uh, and then they put you in white vans and drive you in the dark to this little charnel house. It's a little brick building. Uh, think of it like a wheel and spokes. There, There's a center chamber and that's where the gurney is, where the person is murdered, killed, executed. And then you have these rooms, these chambers that surround it with two-way mirrors. Um, so you can see in, the individual cannot see out. That's for the victim's family, the killer's family, and the press. And the lawyers, I believe, are usually, if they want to witness it, where the, um, the executed person's, the inmate's family would be. Um, and in this case, and, the victim's family weren't, I think, I mean, actually, obviously, the daughter had been killed, but I think the mother had also been been murdered herself later, right? So the mother was murdered. Jacaren's mother was murdered shortly after Jacaren's uh, paternity test because the boyfriend she had been living with believed that Jacaren was his daughter. When he found out she wasn't, he killed the mother, killed himself. The grandmother who had taken care of Jacaren is also dead. So it seems like pretty much everyone who knew this little girl is. Already, so tragedy heap, heaped upon tragedy. So you're in there. You've been in the middle of in the middle of the night. I guess you know under cover of darkness. You've been taken in white vans. You're in the chamber, and they then they will get into the kind of drug that you use. Remember, but they inject the drug, and then you sit and watch. Right. It's um. It was raining. It was cold, and I had a coat on. I had my my heavy coat on and a sweater. Um, we get into the chamber, and it's hot. I have no idea why it was so hot in there, um, but it's very, it's a tight little cinder block room. Um, and with the sort of enamel paint, I think of, I associate with elementary school classrooms or something. Mm. It has plastic chairs and sort of industrial nubby carpet, and it's it's muggy. The moisture from outside and the heat inside uh, is almost unbearable. And so I'm sitting in, in this chair watching uh, Alfred through the window. Um, the way they strap the individuals to the gurney is cruciform. They have outstretched arms. Uh, they're not um, in a in a sort of straight line. Um, and they you never see when the medication begins. Uh, you just see a U.S. marshal pick up a phone and say, uh, "There are no more stays. Uh, we're you know we can proceed." And then you begin to see the individual change, right? So Alfred, his body began to sort of um, churn, it looked like. Um, a, an inhuman kind of uh, gulping, spasming of the belly, an uh, undulation. Um, and they turn off the microphone that transmits sound into the room where the press is, so you don't know if there's any noise being made. Um, you only see um, what's happening to the individual. And it, it took a long time, it took over 20 minutes. And I was transfixed the whole time. I guess I felt like uh, not on an intellectual level, but on an emotional level watching this, you always feel like because executions are theater, because it is a performance, it almost sets up expectations 
like a theater performance. And some part of me felt like, okay, but there's going to be an intervention here. Like he's not, they're not actually just going to kill someone right in front of me for no reason. Someone like who's one not of those a, theater, theaters where you're in the round almost. Right, did right. You, like an amphitheater. Think, and at some point someone's going to say, run on the set. And yeah, was, there like, part of you, was there part of you that was feeling like it wasn't real? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a part of me that is working and I'm writing the story in my head. And, and so that's just a hazard of being a journalist, which is you're in a situation, but it's actually occurring to you as a story. Um, but it's also happening in real life and you're a part of it. Um, and he stopped moving. There was no intervention and a uh, person representing themselves as a doctor came in. All of these people, the U.S. Marshals, the doctors, the executioners are kept anonymous and secret. Their identities are not disclosed to the press. We don't even know where they come from. They bring them in from out of state. Mm. Um, this gentleman uh, introduced as a physician came in. He was wearing jeans and a plaid shirt. He had a stethoscope, ostensibly checked for vital signs, signs of life, and uh, declared Alfred dead. Well, he and probably then, did, didn't he? I mean, he probably did check that he was dead. Yes, right? yeah, so. yeah. I, I mean, I can't, you know, the journal, journalist brain. Um, but he, he, he used the stethoscope to check his pulse and his heartbeat and declared him dead. And then they sort of ushered us out. And the other reporters who were old hands at this, um, because they were local Indiana reporters who had been following this at Terre Haute, um, you know, just kind of went back out to the van. And I was just sort of, out of it um the heat and the humidity and the fact of it and the abruptness with which it's all over the the performance is over you know we get back in a van we go home uh i walked out of the room and puked on the pavement um probably for a lot of reasons and then got back in the uh in the van and they took us back and i i got a ride home from another reporter right home right back to the hotel and i spent some time with the lawyers later that evening you report you reported on that um, yeah it thank was you. dark is it the first death that you've witnessed yes so it will always be the case the first death it won't Almost certainly won't be the last if you're anything like normal humans. Um, although I hope none quite so. But the, your first death to be an execution um, uh, is unusual, uh, to, to say to say the least. And it obviously didn't. You allowed space in for your emotions into to reporting. It didn't change your position. You reported at the end that there was just nothing there. There's no sense of redemption or release or just that. There's a there's a sort of a nihilism about the whole thing that you're kind of just left with a with an emptiness about it but i also i mean to come back i guess to why you went down this road in the first place to do to do such uh, such in-depth reporting as you have done over the last few months on this particular issue because it seems you you've clearly come to a, a view that it's wrong to take someone's life because as you've written there's an indelible human dignity that remains intact and you know again i think we want i want to dig into that a, a little bit as to why well let's start that way why why is that why is is why is that you where does that come from right you take these horrific horrific crimes these criminals and you could take examples from history if you wanted to right but your view is that no matter how evil you've actually said the evil and good are always intertwined no matter how evil what someone's done, there remains something about them that's indelible, something about them, even, even someone like this. I'm sorry, Alfred. Where does that come from? Oh, you know, on the one hand, I'm, I'm Catholic, and so there's a very strong prejudice in favor of uh, human life, and that's something that I uh, lean into full bore, um, extremely uh, prejudiced in favor of, of the human race so far as to call myself a human chauvinist. Hmm. Um, I think there's nothing like us. I, I always return to the, to the uh, selection from Hamlet, right? What a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty. 
and moving, how express and admirable and action, how like an angel and apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, right? I think that's completely, completely true. I think it's a perfect explanation of what we are, the crowning glory of the entire galaxy. Have you ever seen anything else like us? Uh, you, you know, other animals certainly have their place in the order of things and they're great. And I mean, most of the time we don't dunk on animals because why would we? It's obvious that <laughs> when you're hunting a deer, <laughs> right, and you've got a, a rifle with a scope on it and a structure you've built, it's pretty clear that you have something on the stag that it just can't be matched, right? Unless you want to take on a tiger with no weapons, barehanded or something with only your wits. Um, that being said, early humans did mm-hmm. destroy megafauna. I mean, it's remarkable. And we've been to the moon. I mean, it, so there's a sort of uniqueness about us. And for you, because you come at this from this theological perspective with sort of the, the iron filings almost of divinity and that, that, that remains kind of within everybody, um, that the, that the kind of hope is always there. I know that you're actually in, uh, Augustine, St. Augustine scholar. And so now looking into this a little bit, it doesn't necessarily land in the same place as you, but it may, but it, he actually wrote about this, um, in, uh, he was writing about the Sermon on the Mount and Mm -hmm. he was unenthusiastically in favor of the death penalty for reasons that I think were interesting. Uh, if I understand them correctly, he said that great and holy men punished some sins with death, both because the living were struck with a salutary fear. Mm-hmm. Right, so we've got deterrence in there, and we can perhaps come on to that. He just may just be empirically wrong about that, but and then more interestingly, and because it was not death itself that would injure those who were being punished with death, but sin, which might be increased if they continued to live. So it looks as if, in Augustine's uh, thought anyway, there's some quality, uh, purity, or hardness of sin that is just kind of just that that's indelible. Actually, there's something, and and I reading your reporting and some of these debates and to bring us back perhaps to the case in question, there's something quite Augustinian about these now, which is that it's almost a search for a level of sin mm-hmm. that is, a, there's a pure evil here, right? So that's why, and you, you mentioned the case actually, uh, the bourgeois case that actually it was, what did for him was the, the evidence, not conclusive as it turns out, that he actually raped his two-year-old daughter as well. So, well, if he raped her as well. And so it's like, there's a kind of level. It's almost like there's a sinfulness here that is, has to be blotted out. Uh, that's, I think, if I'm understanding Augustine correctly, that's what I think. And I think you disagree that there's ever a, an amount of kind of sin that is irremovable. Right. I think, uh, you know, Augustine understands sin to be a degradation or a destruction. That's what evil is. It's non-being, sort of turned towards non-existence. Um, and it's why I think the movie The Witch, um, a sort of recent horror movie, uh, is a great example of actually how Christians think about it. A very, very quick summary is that um, there's a witch in sort of colonial New England. You know, it's the what, 18th century at some point? These is this are, Salem witch trial? Time? Forgive my that history. That era, know. right. These okay. are, yeah, these are, you know, uh, I think h- hardcore Calvinist uh, offshoots from a, a Puritan colony. Um, and the the thing that the, the devil in the film causes is just degradation and madness. There's no plan. There's no, uh, there's no higher logic at work. There's just a breakdown of everything that is good, a dissolution and a destruction. And I think that's actually how evil is. So if someone has uh, degraded themselves through sin, which is what happens when you sin, you degrade yourself, you become less yourself, further away from being a complete human being, um, then how does killing them help? And it just completes the process, right? I mean, like, now they have no opportunity to restore any of that to themselves, right? And so I, I find that mm. to be very confusing. Um, I suppose it's, it, bec- I mean, it's yeah. because, I, and I'm not saying this is right, but I think that the sense is that at some point it becomes, the re- opportunity for restoration just isn't there. 
that this is clearly so so the sin has so corroded this person that they have been engulfed by it uh, and that's kind of how i read augustine and others actually that that's that there is no hope that that you always offer the hope your view is that right to the end the most heinous criminal possible could still write to the last there's always hope for redemption in your view for everybody absolutely god says less for some than others right 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 i mean less likely for some than others i can say i have doubts that that person is going to do what they need to do but you know god says is is anything too hard for the lord paul is at the stoning of stephen he helped Mm -hmm. round up christians to be killed and then he became the Apostle Paul. Right? Yes, you, I mean, yeah. So you write about how evil is always entwined, entwined with good, and you can't separate them either within the individual uh, either. But, but I think I also wanted to ask you a bit about your personal experience of this because I do think you can bring a different, various perspectives to bear here, which is that this is not just a hypothetical for you. I think a lot of people probably to some extent go along with being of course i'm against the death penalty maybe we haven't thought about it very much or had maybe not experienced a situation where that's put to the test but you've had a experience through your family which did put that to the test at least for your own family members would you mind describing that and whether or not that influenced you at all in this direction Sure. So my husband and I grew up in the same town in Texas called Arlington. He lived around the corner from me. We met in high school on the debate team. His older sister was older than him by 18 months. Her name was Heather. Um, And she also went to our school. I knew her. I knew him. Um, And in 2016, uh, June of that year, shortly after our first daughter was born, um, Matt uh, got a call from his dad and his dad said Heather had been killed that she was dead. And, um, Matt came and told me and I said, you know, well, was it an accident? And he said, no, no, she was murdered. They know who did it. it. Didn't take them long to apprehend the individual because after he killed her, he stole her car and was still covered in her blood when he was, uh, arrested. The reason it didn't end up having the elements of a capital crime were issues of diminished capacity. There were drugs involved. Um, uh, But Matt, my husband, um, you know, we didn't know that right off the cuff. Mm. It could have been a capital crime as far as It could easily have been a capital crime in Texas. And and Tarrant County is, is, you know, one of the most reliably red counties in the country. Not, not just Texas, but the entire nation. And uh, the likelihood that they would seek uh, capital punishment and get it in this kind of a case seemed pretty good to my husband and I. And so Matt packed a suitcase, went home, helped his parents arrange the funeral, um, and uh, spoke to uh, the detectives and the prosecutor and said, look, we don't want anyone to seek capital punishment. We're not interested in that. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that, right? Because... Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize this, but when you get a capital sentence, this is not over for the victim's family. They end up getting contacted over and over and over again. They get regular phone calls from the DA's office updating them on the progress of the case. They, um, If there is a stay issued or relief granted, uh, they will get dug up by the DA to go on TV and talk about it. Um, and then they have to or have the opportunity to attend the execution and they will be uh, notified about that, asked about it. Their names will be printed all over again in the paper when it happens. Um, it's a very long, invasive process. And he didn't want that for his family. And he also is just against execution in principle and didn't have any interest in seeing it pursued on on the family's behalf um and i mean i i there are so many reasons i admire my husband um but one of those is you know he is a principled person and uh you know we learn virtue from watching it demonstrated by uh, a more competent other um and that did that did inform my thinking and it, it helped me develop my own resolve it made it more made it more real for you perhaps absolutely actually have and, 
someone have to have to make that decision for real rather than right and it made the demonstration of that virtue all the more obviously beautiful that uh if you really really want to defend the indelible fact of human dignity it's very easy to select a case like um you know a, a really superlative figure um you know the guy who figured out how to genetically engineer crops so everybody could have wheat no matter the climate um you know any you name your nobel winning mm. scientist jonas salk you know that's someone who yeah <laughs> develops yeah. a polio vaccine and yeah, doesn't patent good. it intentionally so all yeah. children can be vaccinated you know there's your argument mm. for indelible human dignity but no if you really want to defend it you have to go the furthest down into the deepest darkest underbelly of, of humanity has to be the worst case to test it well, and actually what that means of course if that's your motivation for opposing the death penalty then it means that some of the tactical arguments that are used uh, are actually in the end superfluous to your case because so for example people say well some of them might be innocent and there's you know whatever four percent or so there's that there's then there's the question of like they didn't do the thing they're accused of doing so in the case you know in bourgeois case that he didn't rape his daughter and if that was the thing that that tipped because the evidence was inconclusive as you show then maybe that wasn't but actually in the end even if you had a hundred percent certainty that they had done the most horrific crime imaginable that wouldn't alter your position so those are those are sort of tactical moves that are made by anti-death penalty campaigners, which in the end don't count for you, right? <laughs> if you had 100% certainty, totally heinous crime, you'd still be against putting them to death. So whereas for some people, I think it's like, okay, if I knew for sure, there's no shadow of a doubt, and it was that that terrible, then I'd be in favor of it. So there's a difference, there's a difference in the motivation between some people on this, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's a There's a difference in principle there. I think all of those arguments are... Um, you know, to varying degrees, I don't, I don't like all of them. Um, but to varying degrees, the tactical, you know, the sort of policy complaints, or the efficacy complaints about the death penalty are useful, because different people are persuaded by different weaknesses in the system. And there are many. And so all of those things are true. Um, the expense aspect of it is another, it's extremely expensive compared to not executing someone. Uh, Arizona just spent $1.5 million on pentobarbital so they can resume executions, right? I mean, it's there's no reason to throw that kind of money away. Um, but so that's, that's just the, an That's example. the argument you make. So you've got an argument for fiscal conservatives. You've got an argument yeah. for jurisprudence, et cetera. But, um, right. but as I say, in, 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 there are those who for whom in the end in, in, they are yeah, they're they are second order questions, not not first order ones. I wanted to ask you about life imprisonment because mm -hmm. you make the point that alfred bourgeois was going to die in jail anyway i actually saw that the supreme court just upheld lifetime for someone called brett jones who was 15 mm -hmm. when he murdered his his grandfather but i also note that pope francis um mm -hmm. is against life imprisonment at least mm -hmm. as a default he said in 2014 that a sentence of life without parole is a hidden death penalty and it's been removed from the Vatican Penal Code. So he's describing life imprisonment as a hidden death penalty. And I think this is important because sometimes in polling, and I'm going to ask you about polling in a moment, actually the question put to people is death versus life in prison. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's actually used as a way to draw out people's views about the death penalty. But there's also a real deep issue here about the role of the criminal justice system altogether. So are you with Pope Francis on the uh the hidden death penalty of life sentence as well yeah i think it's a next order um concern for me so i would say that my concern about the death penalty is fundamentally different than my concern about uh, life without parole i'm concerned about both death penalty is a is a different moral category for me um i would say that lwap you know it vastly diminished the death sorry what did, sorry you're gonna uh, say that. lwop uh, life without parole lwop oh, thank you <laughs> the, thank you i lawyers. thought you were referring to something from lord of the rings or something <laughs> no for the moment. no no, the, okay. the, no the criminal you. defense attorneys call it. you're LWOP. really you're really into this i mean you've, i talk you've to them every day gone, yeah okay thank you <laughs> and so um life without parole it it, it vastly diminished death sentences in texas 
I mean, if you want to look at why was Harris County once the killingest county in the country, not only did it send more people to Texas death row than any other county in Texas, it sent more people to death row than most states in the country. Why did that change? Because of life without parole. It was only introduced to the Texas Penal Code relatively recently. And at that point, juries just didn't see the point of going through with, uh, you know, capital sentencing. It's longer. It's harder. Uh, prosecutors realized that jurors who might have hangups about sentencing someone to death had much fewer about sentencing someone to life without parole. Uh, it just seemed to tie up a lot of loose ends and it made things easier on the system. Um, and it saved lives. Now, the question is, well, at what cost, right? To, mm. uh, you know, it saved life at the expense of quality of life. Right. And, but, but it does still yeah. open up the possibility for redemption. It does open up the possibility, sure. you know, albeit not possibly release. Um, so I can see why for you it's a, you know, a next, a next order question, Um uh, to, in a sense, I kind of that's a fight for another day, um, rather than than for now. And you, you mentioned actually the the money that was spent by Arizona on the drug, and that actually brings me to the question of public opinion uh, mm -hmm. on this. And it's super interesting that that the, the uh, pentobarbital had to be shipped with unmarked labels. That actually Trump was able to. I mean, mm -hmm. actually Trump and Barr, what they actually. In order to make this happen at all, they had to solve this problem of getting the drugs. And actually, I was in the coalition government in the UK with the Liberal Democrats, and one of our small but proudest achievements was actually stopping the UK selling drugs to the US for the death penalty. Yeah. So it's getting harder and harder to get it. They had to shield the identity mm -hmm. of the drug companies um, providing it, right? Which is, that's pretty interesting. That tells us something oh, yeah. about public opinion, doesn't it? Absolutely. So this is bad business for drug companies. Um, it's bad business for drug companies for a couple of reasons. One, uh, there's just next to no market for these lethal drugs. Um, uh, and so if you're only going to be selling high concentrations of thiopental or pentobarbital or, or what have you to state and the federal government, um, then it's just not worth the production costs. But they'll do it. Uh, however, when you add in uh, people protesting and boycotting the companies, um, not only domestically but internationally for doing this, um, then it becomes really not worth it. And so lots of them not only have tricky Europeans <laughs> slowly <laughs> cut off the United yeah, States there's, supply. There's less, there's less of it coming across the Atlantic. <laughs> there's than less it used of it. To be. Italy yep. used to send a lot. Uh, the EU told them to knock it off. They knocked it off. Uh, Great Britain, uh, uh, Denmark, the huge pharmaceutical supplier, they won't do it. Um, and so the United States, they can produce these things domestically. The companies don't like to do it uh, because it's just not worth it for them. Barr said, I'll protect you. I'll hide your identity. So far, that's been successful. I feel like that sort of thing doesn't actually always last because somewhere in Arizona, somewhere in the Bureau of Prisons, there's paperwork um, uh, that lists the contractors because there's just a huge amount of um, bureaucracy that has to be gone through to do government contracting. So I don't think that those promises of anonymity are going to hold up forever. In fact, Reuters figured out which drug companies were selling it to the feds already. Oh, really? um, yeah, they had an investigation they published last year. Um, and so it's just a matter of time with the states. Um, and, and I think that, you know, is, is fascinating. It's totally possible that the pentobarbital in Arizona is coming from a compounding pharmacy run out of someone's garage. Like we have no idea where it's coming from. Well, that from. might be that that's the only way that we, we can get it, but it's very interesting how, I mean, just looking at the shift, the shift in kind of public opinion, um, maybe you can help to kind of tell the story of this, but because it feels like that. So it really was the 90s where there was both a peak in death, certainly federal death penalty cases, um, but also if you could kind of public opinion support, um, you know, seems to have peaked in roughly the kind of you know mid 90s as all part of the war on crime, and then really come down, although much more among Democrats than Republicans, it seems to become kind of even more associated with um, with party affiliation. But it looks like 90s right. pretty popular. Much less so today, and especially less so among among Democrats. Is that is that roughly right? 
Yeah, I think you see the high water mark in the '90s precisely because this uh, the war on crime, the war on drugs. Um, you have in '86 and then amended in '88 the Anti Drug Abuse Act, the ADAA, which adds, uh, which you know, reinstates the federal death penalty, um, and it also it does a bunch of other arguably not great things. But um, you start seeing a lot of interest in that point at deterring crime uh, by putting the death penalty on the table and occasionally, as Augustine suggests, sort of striking fear into the hearts of would-be criminals by uh, liberally giving it out. Um, and, and the thing is that that doesn't seem correlated with a drop in crime. Yeah, the evidence um, for deterrence just isn't there, really, is it? It's not really there, mm. right? I mean, so I, I can't speak to particular cases. Um, it's it certainly, you know, it does a lot of strange things. The death penalty, this is why I like to talk about evil, it's, it's, it's so evil that it warps everything around it. So because the death penalty is on the table, um, people will confess to things they didn't do to plea. Um, people will, mm. um, they're extremely nervous about going to trial. And so they'll do whatever they can to get around it. At that point, uh, the prosecutor just completely has them on a leash. I mean, say whatever you want. They'll confess to it. This means that if people are confessing to things they didn't do, then crimes are going unsolved, actually. And criminals are still out there who did do this. You got the wrong person. You've yeah. got the wrong yeah. guy. Yeah. Right. And, and that's a real phenomenon. You have lots of cases, um, uh, I think the AIDD keeps a running list of all the people with intellectual disabilities who have confessed falsely um, and have been exonerated in in retrospect. Um, but that's not an uncommon situation. And the death penalty makes that more likely. The death penalty also encourages other people to lie on the stand. So um, if, if you have a, uh, two individuals who are involved in the same crime and you convince one that you've got the death penalty on the table for them unless they testify against the other, they'll do it. And they'll lie. And you see an enormous amount of that. You see uh, lawyers doing mitigation that they don't actually really fully believe in. And, um, you know, it's, it's not a good thing. It, 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 it warps everything. And I think... There's huge recognition at this point that that's the case, and and so Hence it's swing, just kind of declined. Yeah, the yeah. swing in public opinion. Although, I mean, it's interesting to me that kind of the that Clinton looms you know, really large over all of this. I mean, I'm I'm older than you, so I'm I'm old enough to actually remember uh, Ricky Ray uh, Rector mm -hmm. in '92. Uh, in fact, I covered Clinton for a little bit for a, a short while for the Guardian um, later. Um, but actually, he la left. This is Clinton's campaigning to become president. He actually leaves the campaign trail to go back so that he's kind of back in Arkansas to be there for the execution um, to show kind of how tough on crime he is and some of the acts you're talking about. In fact, the um, ADIPA, is that how, I don't know how you say the acronym, but the ADIPA, was, he, he signed that in 96, right? And so actually it's interesting to me how when you look back on Clinton generally, I'm sure you'll have views on this, Clinton generally, you think about the social conservatism. And I, you know, I speak as someone who's quite a big fan of Clinton, but you look back on it, a defense of marriage act, death penalty, welfare mm -hmm. reform, actually the the shift of it. And this was a huge sign of that. I mean, the Democrat, it's hard to understate how, you know, overstate or how afraid the Democrats were of being seen as soft on crime. And this this was a big part of it. And actually you can see just how many Democrats were in favor of the death penalty in, in the 90s. And how that's shifted Absolutely. since. This was on the heels of the crack epidemic. Um, and, you know, I certainly understand people being concerned about crime. Nobody wants to be a victim of violent crime. Um, nobody wants cities to be unlivable because of just sort of endemic crime. Um, and I think those are all, you know, accomplishable without, in retrospect, the kind of policy decisions that were made under... Yeah. Under Clinton, well, it, it, it turns out that you know we've seen the, probably the biggest decline in violent crime during the period where the death penalty wasn't really being being used. So you know that's right. that's not that doesn't prove prove anything. But but it did it did tick up public opinion did tick a little bit up um, between sixteen and eighteen. I'm looking, at, I guess this is Gallup polling, but um, actually rose among Catholics by ten points um, between sixteen and and eighteen. And this might bring us on a little bit to. How the politics of this shifted back a little bit under under Trump, and particularly among among Republicans. Uh, so, what happened to the last? What happened to public opinion in the last 
four years and and how far was that driven by trump and the people around him or how far did it kind of predict Trump? i can't really kind of figure out chicken and chicken because i don't remember it being a big deal in 2016 i don't remember it being a particularly big deal on the republican stage i mean i don't actually remember it being a particularly big deal in the 2020 election to be honest so no no right so what so what was happening here? Why why was there even just a slight shift back in favor of it? And what was and what was Trump doing? And what was he hoping to achieve here? So Trump had talked about on the campaign trail giving the death penalty to people who killed police officers. So it was this, this really, is in twenty sixteen. This is sixteen. Yeah, yeah. So this is more about pushing back against um, you know the growing. Uh, criminal justice reform movements based on police violence against black people. So Trump was staking a sort of culture war position there by suggesting he would give the death penalty to people who kill police officers. Right. Um, he, he said that I don't know that he ever actually moved uh, to do anything about that. I think in 2016, if you had asked most people if we even had the federal death penalty, you know, the last person had been executed in 2003 federally, people were not even thinking about it. It didn't, it's not an important mechanism of carrying out justice in the United States, nor does the federal death penalty exist for like the worst of all bad criminals. Uh, it's just people mostly who committed crimes on military bases uh, on accident and things like that. So Brandon Bernard, Alfred Bourgeois were just incidentally on territory that belongs to the federal government. They had no idea. Um, but these were otherwise crimes that would have been prosecuted at the state level in an ordinary fashion uh, i hadn't really okay i hadn't fully grasped that thank you for clarifying yeah. so if so if, <laughs> it's strange if, if right? Albert bourgeois had been if this had happened just outside of the military base i see so it was that it was i mean unless he deliberately did it in a military base which seems unlikely no, it was yeah, just it accident. was just he was just making a delivery it was on federal property um, i see okay. right and that that happens all over the place because there are little patches of federal ground all over the place um and so it's sort of weird and arbitrary and again it had only been reinstated in the 90s and then it had ended essentially in 2003 so there just wasn't a lot of energy behind it however bill barr is a man of the 90s <laughs> um and he had quite a bit of interest in um resuming these executions now i think you have to see trump and barr's interest in executions as an entry in this culture war over uh, law enforcement, right? This is about blue lives matter versus black lives matter. It's about um, amping up the conservative feeling of we have to be extremely hard, extremely unforgiving, um, and and opposed to reform uh, in the in the criminal justice system, or else you know we're going to you know fall victim to whatever mayhem. It is worth saying that crime is up. Mm. Um, and oh, there 2020. Been Absolutely. Yeah. Major yes. spikes in homicide in major cities. And um, I don't see the Democrats coming up with any ideas of what to do about that, which I think um, if they don't acknowledge it and, and come up with a theory of why it's happening and a theory for uh, pushing back on that or trying to solve some of these problems, I think they're just going to get murdered in the midterms. I just completely, I actually slaughtered. completely agree with you. I, th I said to someone the other day, if I was running, if I was advising them, I'd have two, I'd have two charts. I'd have the chart in the rise in violent crime in our cities and a chart in the number of people crossing the border. Um, uh, since Biden came out, I would just literally just run on that and you run on control, order, enforcement, and you basically run on a campaign, which is the Democrats have lost control of our cities and they've lost control of our border. And there is enough evidence that you can marshal to support those claims, polemical though they are, that I think that could be quite politically effective. I mean, people have all kinds of politics and all kinds of opinions, but not liking violent crime is pretty universal. And uh, you see that it, it powered this major kind of reactionary push in the 90s. And there's no reason it can't do that again. And to add another disturbing factor into the mix, um, Barr taught every red state how to get pentobarbital. So everyone who had been unable to carry out the number of executions they wanted or to carry out executions at all because they weren't able to source these drugs, now they know how to source these drugs. It's so very at, possible so you're going to see a surge. At a state level. Okay, but actually, let's just pause. Let's just dig into this a bit because 
we didn't the last one was in 2003 the way you reported is that there was this issue as i understand mm -hmm. it with sourcing the drugs in particular and so on and that particularly under obama it was like okay fine well let, let's not try too hard right it wasn't like no one came out and you know started repealing laws or saying we're against the death penalty but just like let's just let's just let it lie and it did lie for 17 years as you kind of show what did Barr do what was the problem that obama didn't really try very hard to solve that Barr did solve so what the litigation was that held up uh, the federal death penalty was uh, it was a case called Roan, and it had to do with this three drug cocktail that was being used under Bush. Um, a three drug lethal injection cocktail. They've tried lots of different uh, what they call uh, execution protocols over the years with lethal injection. This one, you know, theoretically uh, included a sedative element that would render the whole procedure of of execution peril, uh, um, painless because the individual would be under sedation essentially. Um, and, and then you have the paralytic and so on. Um, and there were real questions about whether or not this was working the way it was supposed to work. And therefore there were eighth amendment questions, cruel and unusual punishment. And so that litigation took forever and it had tons of plaintiffs, um, on death row. And, the, the question, you know, how does this lethal injection cocktail actually work had to be answered. So there were tons of depositions, there were research. Um, and under Obama, he his Justice Department just wasn't really interested in finding the drugs. So at some point they came to court and said, look, um, this is all kind of moot anyway, because we don't have the drugs, we can't get them. And so there's really no point in us pursuing it right now. And so it, 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 it just laid there. When Barr got in there, he had his plan for getting a hold of pentobarbital without putting the companies at risk. He solved that problem. He had pento. And uh, so he started, uh, you know, there were plaintiffs on federal death row who were not a part of that litigation. He started setting dates. He just had to solve the drug. He, he solved the, so it shows that it was at least solvable in that sense, if it, it were the political will, did it um, did it help in the twenty twenty election? And again, it might just mean not me not paying attention, but I just don't recall it being that big an issue. And you think you've gone to all this trouble to solve that and actually execute you know non trivial number of people that you would see some political upside if there was political upside. But was there any evidence of that? I don't think so. I think the that Trump had a problem, and that is, who is going to care about you executing 13 people when 100,000 have died of coronavirus in the last whatever months? I mean, it was just completely blasted out of the news by everything else that was going on. Um, and so the one way in which I think that the, the, the Republicans did get some traction was there was one execution of Brandon Bernard that uh, caught the attention of Kim Kardashian. Um, and so there was this moment of sort of liberal uproar and outrage over this particular execution, but it was fleeting. And another thing that I Barr do remember did, that it was like a 24 hour tweet storm and that was it really. Right. And it, Barr would schedule three executions in a week and the press just gets tired of it. Right. There's, you know, you can't do three big execution stories a week. You're right. Plus, with the pandemic and and what was happening to the economy and and so on, then you can see how that wouldn't wouldn't necessarily kind of cut through. Although, given the conversation we just had about the midterms, I wonder if they'll be able to look back to it and contrast it with Dem inactivity on it since. And it's that actually brings me to kind of what now, I guess, because you've got interesting, you know, Biden, who at the time back in the mid '90s was a man of the '90s, to use your phrase, and you know, strongly supportive of it, but now says he abhors the death penalty. And there is, in, and you reported on this, Democrats have introduced the Federal Death Penalty Abolition Act. Obviously, Supreme Court will be interesting given its kind of composition now. But what do you see as the potential next steps uh, in terms of kind of moving away from the death penalty? We've had this 17-year hiatus followed by the, the sort of death rush from Barr and Trump. Now we've got uh, Biden in the White House and Dems in charge of Congress. Do you expect there to be any progress? If, and if not, why not? I think now is, um, let me put it this way. I'm, I, I expect more regress than progress at the moment. 
Because, um, of, because of the context of the rise in crime. Right, right, because of the rise in crime, because the red states now know how to get Pento, uh, because this, they know that the Supreme Court is not going to stop them. Um, there are just no more barriers and there are no deterrents. And even if it doesn't help them politically, it, it certainly doesn't hurt them with their constituency. And I think if crime continues to rise and Republicans do run against Democrats on spiraling crime, then they will be able to use it to help themselves, um, you know, with a sort of classic 90s tough on crime platform. So, and you, so yeah, so even if there's even if something were to happen at the federal level, and it, it seems like the median bet there would be for nothing to happen, really, and in, in either direction, probably, right? I mean, do you expect, I suspect, do you expect yeah. this act to get through Congress? Or the I Senate? hope it does. I mean, I, I've written about it. I support it. I think, you know, Biden is also a very cautious politician. And um, I emailed with Biden's press folks uh, repeatedly. We're all working on that story and said, you know, well, just what does he think? And they just fundamentally don't want to supply anything more than he's already said, which is I abhor it. I'm against it. Um, but what, without taking any action, I mean, I think they really fear uh, putting chum in the water. Right. If he comes out hardcore against the death penalty, that's just going to tee it up for the Republic. Yeah, I'm sure that to some extent they'd rather just, as I said, kind of let it lie. But it is interesting. You can imagine red states and governors from red states and candidates um, positioning themselves the presidency. As you say, now that Barr has Barr's got rid of some of the obstacles and the Supreme Court's not going to get in the way, actually doing a Clinton effectively. I mean, being the one saying. You know, we're the ones doing something about this. We're the ones who are using the death penalty. All these blue states are running away from it, and Biden's running away from it, and and you know playing in, if effectively a kind of Clintonian, tough on crime. Um, you, know, in, you know, in that sense, twenty twenty two could be ninety two redux. I mean, redux, right? Forty years on. Uh, yes, the are. Capitol defense attorneys yeah. are worried that that's about to happen, and I. I think all of the uh, ingredients are, you know, unfortunately in the mix. And I I don't know what to do about that. I mean, you know, historical forces are bigger than us. Um, in terms of doing the right thing morally, you know, you just bear witness. It's still worthwhile to stand athwart history and say that's wrong. Um, this is wrong. What we're doing is very wrong. Um, well, you've, you've certainly been doing that. That Liz, I think you're right that the politics, as it turns out, could be particularly difficult right now. And it'll be fascinating to see how this unfolds. But you have at least drawn attention in a way that I don't think others were to to what's been happening and to the, some of the risks uh, around this. I want to commend you on that reporting. What's what's um, what's next for you? Are you going to keep uh, this is a, you've you've been on this issue for a fair while now i'm not saying it's the only thing you're writing about but um but it, but obviously you've been kind of focused on on this it feels like probably gone about as far as you can in terms of uh, your writing on this i may be wrong about that but um it, what's 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 uh, next on your agenda yeah i've i've been thinking about sort of um creative ways to get deeper into it without you know sort of retracing my footsteps um it's possible I will come up with a way to do that and impossible I will not. Um, I have um, several other pieces that have to do with the criminal justice system, not necessarily with capital punishment in the works. Um, and I have um, some pieces relating to um, labor. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I think that those are the things that seem really strong and promising to me right now. Um, and I, you know, kind of stumble into new, new ideas all the time, but, um, yeah, but it's interesting. On my of, I mean, you're broadening it out because I, I think underpinning your views about the death penalty are views about the role of criminal justice uh, more Absolutely. generally. I've actually got uh, Martha Nussbaum coming on at, at some point and okay. to talk about forgiveness and, um, punishment. And she talks about the difference between a payback justice and future oriented justice and, the role of the criminal justice system. So if it is like you've done the crime, you serve the time, it's a, there's a sort of retributive, uh, this is about, it's the institutionalization of revenge. She writes very, very nicely about how the Furies were tamed by Athena and so on, but it's all, that's a very Nussbaum. The kindly ones. The, the, yes, yes, exactly. Yes, the kindly ones, how they became the kindly ones and, and her hope that that's what 
our justice system is about, that it's, and actually deterrence, of course, could be future looking, right? If the role is to deter future crime, that does make it future oriented, but it's not about retribution. It's not about seeking to avenge the wrong. I, there's a wrong here, so there's a wrong there. And the death penalty seems to me to just be the most obvious and extreme example of a, a whole philosophy of criminal justice. And it sounds like you're going to dig into that a bit more. Is that right? Absolutely. I hope to do that. Um, you know, I think that a big part of that, I actually wrote about forgiveness this weekend in the Sunday Review, but a big part of that is just the acceptance of, of brokenness. And ultimately, when we refuse to carry out the death penalty, um, despite the fact that some crimes really are head and shoulders above others, right, in terms of malice, heinousness, cruelty, uh, there are really shocking and abhorrent crimes that are categorically different than other kinds of crime. And I fully believe that. And I think when we decline to give the death penalty, even for those crimes, what we're saying is I am not going to help you destroy yourself. I'm not going to participate in the degradation of yourself and society that you have undertaken. No, absolutely not. And what does that mean for lesser, lesser crimes? What's the purpose of, you know, someone who hasn't committed such a, a heinous crime? Uh, and we've sort of three, you know, the idea of, you know, some of these no parole, right, brings us back to this kind of sense of the level of kind of pu how punitive should we be? What's the justification? Why are we putting people in jail at all, I guess, is what I'm, what I'm saying, right? Yeah, I mean, you hope that there's a deterrent aspect. There is a punitive aspect. You hope to keep it proportional. And uh, hopefully to measure and try to understand what is actually useful, the goal is to eliminate recidivism to the greatest degree possible. And I would put a ton of my energy in that. And therefore, prison should be a, a place where there's a meaningful rehabilitation taking place. And so that means changing uh, a lot of things about the way that we do criminal justice now. I mean, and how, we treat, and how we treat the people. Uh, yeah, I think actually the recidivism rate is a pretty good candidate for a metric of how successful our criminal justice system is in achieving its goals. And it gets way too little attention. You look at who's in jail and who's not in jail and should they be in jail. But recidivism is sort of the, the, uh, the metric that doesn't, doesn't get enough attention in my view. And our criminal justice system is very good at, at causing recidivism, essentially. Um, people go to prison, they go to jail, they're badly mistreated. Um, they are essentially uh, traumatized in a lot of cases with rampant sexual assault and abuse by prison authorities, not given health care, any kind of counseling or training. And then they're released back into a society that uh, fundamentally hates felons, right? They can't get work. Uh, they can't get, um, uh, they can't rent uh, units to live in. Um, and so they are put back in a position where essentially the criminal activity they were doing before becomes, you know, even more appealing, if not their only option. It's almost a miracle so when people yeah. don't. Kind of, exactly. Yeah, there's this great, when, yes. wonderful Atlantic essay that you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates is about the, the great gray wastes of the mm -hmm. kind of uh, criminal justice and, uh, and the description of it being right now. Well, look forward to more of your writing on this, uh, Liz, as well as, of course, following, following your um your valorization of domestic labor on Twitter uh, alongside of this. You can, any, anybody that can move from doing the kind of work you're doing and the difficult work you're doing on the, the death penalty to the, the, the brightness that you very often show and through your social media accounts is definitely bringing good to the world. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.